Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality and restoration industry. Today's broadcast is episode number 144, and today is Friday, October 30th, 2009. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. Radio Joe is participating remotely from Studio C in Indian Lake, PA, the intrepid environmental Ann Koalecki is in the audience, and wingman Chris Boisel is at the controls. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with John Don's Andy Robinson on the subject of material drying with heat, comments by our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and a roundup at the end. Radio Joe and I, along with the wingman's help, have been working hard on the iqradio.com website. Uh, we add a blog each week after the show. We hope that you like it. We've also changed the invitations and news announcements from IEQ Radio and IEQ Training Institute, and we hope you like the new look and improved functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Contacting the show is easy. You can do so by phone by simply dialing 724-444-7444 and entering our show ID, which is 1547. Press and join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show, and you can get the show from iTunes. Remember, you can get your IICRC Continuing Education Credits, IAQ Council Renewal, and now ABIH Credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Okay, let's talk a little bit about trivia. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Again, cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Congratulations to Alex Lesko from Florence, Massachusetts for correctly answering last week's microband trivia question. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, October 30th, 2009. 
1724, Gabriel Daniel Fahrenheit developed the temperature scale used in the United States and a few other countries today. The scale in widest use throughout the world today was invented in 1742 and is also named for its developer. What is his name? Okay, how about some intro music? Our guest this afternoon is Andy Robinson, John Don Restoration Products Manager. Andy started his career in the cleaning and restoration industry with John Don back in March of 1994. Andy developed a strong understanding in the carpet and janitorial industry before moving into the restoration sales department in 1996. In 96, Andy was named John Don's Restoration Products Manager with responsibilities for overseeing all restoration aspects of John Don's 10 locations nationwide. Andy has been on location for several hurricanes and floods throughout the years. Andy spearheaded John Don's efforts in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina, uh, helped set up their temporary office in Kiln, Mississippi to assist restoration contractors with their equipment and supply needs. Andy holds all restoration, carpet, and upholstery certifications through the IICRC. Andy has had his ASD Advanced Structural Drawing Certificate, has a Vortex Drawing Certificate, has a Mold Remediation Certificate, and has attended many of RIA educational programs, including the inaugural Water Loss class. Okay, Andy, uh, good afternoon. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Good afternoon, Cliff. How are you doing today? That's great. It's great. Okay, well, Andy. Good, Andy. Yeah, he does. Guys, I love the uh, intro music, by the way. What a, uh, what a perfect way to start this process. Absolutely. You know, we figured you had some hot stuff that we were going to talk about, and I gave Andy three hot choices, and she kind of like Donna Amen, Summer. Amen, baby. <laughs> Donna Summer. Okay. Well, speaking, I like it. Okay. What, 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 and, and thinking about heat, uh, Andy, what is uh, – there, there's a term that goes around BTU. What, what is that? What's it stand for? What, what is it? All right, so Cliff, uh, BTU is a term that stands for what we call British Thermal Unit. Um, to kind of give you a definition, a British Thermal Unit is a traditional unit of energy. Um, it is approximately the amount of energy needed to heat a pound of water one degree Fahrenheit. Okay. And to kind of give you some background on that, it takes approximately about 1,000 BTUs to evaporate one pound of water. Andy, how much does my how many BTUs does the typical you know household furnace produce? Uh, you know, it really depends on the size of the furnace. Um, every house may utilize a different size furnace to match the square footage of the home uh, that you're living in. Most common size for furnaces that we see for residential home applications will probably be between about eight, eighty to a hundred thousand BTUs. Um, you know, formal definition for a furnace is a device that's having a uh, heating input rate of uh, less than 225,000 BTUs. Okay. Huh. What's, what's above 225? What do they call it then? Um, uh, an enhanced furnace, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, furnace big, a big <laughs> furnace. <laughs> an extreme furnace, something like that. I will just call it hot stuff today. Okay, cool. Well, let's move into some technical issues, Andy. What types of heat drying systems uh, are available? Okay, so, so in our marketplace, there's a multitude of different types of systems. Uh, the most prevalent types of heat-based equipment that we may see in the restoration industry are electric. Um, there's also hydronic, uh, which incorporate a boiler. Uh, with a glycol that runs through um, solution lines. We also see what we call forced air uh, that can either recirculate uh, along with forced air systems that do not recirculate the air. Um, current system that John Don is working with is uh, a forced air non-recirculating system. Um, the systems that I've mentioned will basically range in footprint, guys. Some of the smaller uh, electric ones could be the size of a dehumidifier. 
Um, some machines are substantially larger. Uh, you may see that some machines are actually trailer-mounted systems. Um, the current technology that we're working with, uh, which is our direct-fired system, the RX heat system, is a trailer-mounted system, but is available a couple different ways. You can get it in a portable footprint on casters or, again, in larger trailer-mounted uh, applications. And, you know, other systems in the market also are uh, offered that way, where, again, it can be portable or offered in a, uh, a turnkey or a trailer-mounted system. You know, before we move on, I just want to go back and clarify an issue. Uh, it, it, when you started answering the question, you talked that the most common units in use today would be uh, fueled by electric. I suspect that your unit is fueled by uh, a fuel other than electric? Yeah, great question. Um, so the system that we currently work with at John Don, our RX heat system, uh, that is actually a propane-fired system. So we are using propane as our predominant fuel consumption for the machine. Gotcha. A lot of the other systems in the marketplace are utilizing propane. There are some diesel systems out there. Um, so every machine may be a little bit different in their uh, fuel consumption, or let me rephrase that, in, in the fuel that they use um, to heat. Okay. Um, I, I guess, you know, going back to this electric, you, know, you, you talked about electric systems. Um, I suspect that unless you have an auxiliary generator to run an electric system, then that system is going to need to work off of the building's electrical power, correct? Um, correct, but you know what I can tell you? Th there are different electric systems out there that are smaller footprints in nature that actually work off 115-volt circuits. There are also bigger electric systems that, again, you may have to tap into the client's power on the job or a gen set, depending on, you know, uh, how much heat the system may deliver and the footprint of the different electric systems that are in the marketplace. But again, you will see that there are portable footprints um, that will work off a standard 115-volt uh, outlet. Okay. Joe? Andy, how, how does this heat drying differ from the traditional drying? I, I, we've got a lot of people on today. I know a lot of them are from uh, of course, we teach that at EWF, and I'm sure they're wondering, well, you know, what's what's the big deal about the heat drying? I know our normal people that listen in probably understand a little better, but can you kind of differentiate between the two for us? So if I'm hearing you correctly, you want to know what is the difference between heat-based systems versus maybe different technologies that are out there like dehumidification or desiccants or other uh, types of drying processes? Exactly. Why, why are we going to the heat drying systems as opposed to putting in uh, air movers and dehumidification? Right. Well, the, the one thing I'll clarify in the statement you just made, Joe, is whether I'm using heat-based drying equipment or I'm using desiccants or I'm using LGRs, you're still incorporating air movers. Air movers are going to serve as our means of uh, taking the liquid and putting it into a vapor. So I want to clarify right from the get-go that air movers are still absolutely imperative on the job with any type of uh, drying technology that you use. So you're using um, indoor, inside the, dry, the area you're drying. You're still inside the space to, to direct the airflow from the air movers across the wet materials. But to answer your question, I guess, you know, the advantages uh, that heat systems may have over alternative technology um, I guess the major advantage to heat drying is going to be the speed of the job. You know, we can dry things substantially faster. Um, Heat-based drying systems can reduce the drying time on average from 25 to 75% versus, you know, other non-heat-based drying equipment. Um, Heat-based heat units uh, will also provide the ability to raise the temperature and maintain temperatures uh, easier than traditional drying equipment used, which uh, gives us the ability to create a larger thermos in the air, more uh, moisture available in the air um, for drying. Uh, the system we work with, the RX Heat, has uh, basically built-in thermostats that uh, give us the ability to control the preset temperatures that we're looking to establish on the job. Uh, the machine will control um, temperature, BTU rating. So the beauty of uh, the technology in heat is with certain machines, you can basically set the temperature, set it, and forget about it. Other types of equipment that are used in the industry, you really need to be continuously monitoring to ensure that they're working in their ideal target range for performance. You know, we, we've learned that dehumidifiers have a 
primary operating range. Um, you know, there's a 70 to say 95 uh, degree sweet spot. You know, when you get above or you drop below, there may be inefficiencies on that. Um, desiccants, which I love, they're great tools. LGRs are great tools. With desiccants, we know on average, we sometimes will see about a 20, maybe 30 degree increase uh, over ambient. So there are going to be some uh, advantages to heat base. Again, if I want to get the temperature up, I can usually achieve that because I have greater heat gains with that technology. Andy, would you agree or disagree that if I'm using a desiccant dehumidifier, if I'm using a heat drying device such as the one that you market and competitive yeah, sure. you know, models to that, or I'm even using an LGR, would you wouldn't would you agree that all of these use heat uh, to help dry materials? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, they do. You know, the LGR is basically going to uh, reheat the environment. So, you know, if I'm starting with a 70-degree temperature, I am going to get uh, heat gain from the LGR. The desiccant is going to give me heat gain to the uh, structure. So all forms of uh, equipment that we know do add a form of heat to the environment. Okay. And, Andy, am I correct in saying heat is a, a very important part of drying uh, water-damaged buildings? Absolutely. Yeah, but the thing that I want to stress with heat, heat is very important to drying, but I think we also need to look at controlled heat because I believe if you pump, you know, excessive heat into a structure, whether it be commercial, whether it be residential, and you got excessive temperatures, 150, 160, you have the ability of affecting materials. Heat is a great tool when used correctly and having limitations and understanding at what point your temperature should be um, set at, depending on the materials that we are drying and uh, what is present in the structure. Andy, could you tell the listeners how, by, by what mechanism or by what process, heat actually dries materials? Well, here's what I can tell you. So heat does one thing extremely well. Uh, it gets things moving, and what, I'm, what I mean by gets things moving is it excites the water. By delivering large amounts of energy in the structure in the form of BTUs or heat, uh, we can actually create evaporation at a much higher rate on the job. When you increase a material's temperature, you know, every 17 degrees you increase the, the material's temperature, you actually double the molecule, molecule movement in that material. So if I can speed up the molecules in the water by, by adding energy to it, I can actually take it from that vapor and put it into a liquid format um, so I can uh, basically flush that moisture out of the structure. And, uh, again, the, the, the process is by increasing temperature, we're creating that larger thermos. Uh, we're raising the temperature. We're creating more energy, more excitement of the water to basically uh, be released from the materials. Andy, let me let me. I got a text question here from a listener, and it's pretty. It just says, "Why not just turn on the home furnace?" Well, the, the furnace should be used. Um, you know, you got to remember with the furnace system, there uh, the furnace may range from eighty to hundred thousand BTUs. So let's say that your outside conditions are extremely cold. You're in Chicago in the middle of the winter time. Your furnace may only may only give you the ability to go up to. 90 degrees or 95 degrees, and that's necessarily not a bad thing, but again, if I can uh, raise the energy and I can go from, say, 90 and increase it to 110 or 115, I've given the air the ability to hold more moisture, which then, again, I can evaporate, flush out of the structure. If it's heat-based, maybe I'm evacuating directly to the outside, depending on what technology. If I'm using uh, air movers or dehumidifiers, you know, again, I can use the furnace system in an effort to help uh, set temperatures that will optimize the performance of the piece of equipment that I am actually working with. So furnaces can uh, serve as a heating type system, but they're limited in how much warmer you can get the temperature to increase your thermos or your moisture holding capability. Annie? What kind of temperature are you looking at? With, with heat-based equipment? Yeah, what are you what's your goal there? Well, I, again, I think I had mentioned earlier that there's a right and wrong temperature to dry at. If I'm doing a, a residential application, I have building materials in there, I have drywall, I have cabinetry, I have carpet and padding that's affected. I want to work within a temperature range that's about 
hundred and well, on average, I would say between 95 all the way up to 120. I would never want to exceed a temperature of 120 degrees. I think it's a safe operating temperature that, again, gives me greater moisture holding capability at that temperature. Okay, Andy, I've seen uh, yes. I've seen your machine. It's pretty cool looking. But where do the hoses go, and what do they do? And does your unit use air pressure differentials and airflow as a drying mechanism? Okay, so I guess I'll talk about heat-based systems in general, you know, related to the ducts and, and how the systems work. Um, the ducts that we use uh, with the RX heat system and other direct or indirect fired systems um, are actually inlet ducts, which deliver the fresh, hot, dry air into the structure from the base unit that predominantly would be sitting outside. Um, indirect or direct-fired systems use ducts that can range in size. We may see duct ranges that are from 12-inch to 18-inch to 20 inches in diameter. Um, the larger trailer-mounted units have uh, built-in high-capacity blowers on board with high static pressure that actually brings the air into the structure through the ducts that I just mentioned. Um, as the warm air, and let me rephrase that, as the warm dry air enters the structure, it drives out the wet moisture-laden air to the outside. Um, the ducts on the larger trailer-mounted machines are usually capable of handling very high temperature ranges, which the machines are using. When we look at other types of uh, heat-based drying systems like hydronic heaters, um, they use a, a series of large diameter solution hoses uh, that actually transfer fluid glycol through the lines uh, from a boiler system to the radiators or actual exchanger systems that sit inside the structure. The fluid in the lines run back and forth through the boiler, uh, basically transferring the glycol to the exchangers, um, which have fans to dispense the heat across the materials. Okay. Andy. Let me let me get a picture. I'm trying to picture this on the radio. You've got some. Uh, you've got a, a big furnace outside, essentially, and yes. you're pumping warm, dry air into this structure. Now, the cool, cooler, moisture-laden air. How do you determine what direction it goes out of the building? So, with, with our with our drying technology in the RX heat system. I'll give you an average. Um, depending on what unit you're working with, residential, commercial application, you have a variance in CFM, somewhere from 4,000 to 6,000 CFM of warm, dry air that we're bringing into the structure, Joe. Let's use a residential application as a, uh, an example. I have a large basement, so I'm bringing my ducts into the uh, space. If I'm coming in through a window well, I want to get my ducts closest to where the water damage is. So as my heat is flowing into the structure, I'm actually using discharge or evacuation points that would be on the opposite side of the water damage. So if I'm bringing warm heat in through one uh, duct or one, let me rephrase that, one window well, I'm actually opening windows or doors in an effort to drive that moisture-laden air to the outside. So for every cubic feet of air that I'm bringing into the structure, that same cubic feet of air is actually exiting the structure with the moisture-laden air being driven to the outside. We're actually using a very slight positive pressure uh, on the structure. Got it. Thank you. Andy's Hopefully that you know, paints a little better picture for you guys. Yes. Andy, is there a specific drawing situation where heat drying works best? Um... I, you know, I, I think the, the, the short answer is I think heat-based drying systems work best in situations that require high levels of energy. Mm -hmm. um, Hard-to-dry materials, structures with excessive water that may be present in it will require additional energy, uh, which, you know, heat-based machines can produce by giving larger BTUs. Uh, I believe the uh, long answer is anytime you need to provide supplemental heat, to achieve faster drying goals, uh, that's where heat is going to work well. Um, Heat-based units such as, you know, RX Heat, uh, they range again from 800 to 1.2 million BTUs. So I have the extra oomph, I guess you could say, to be able to get my surface temperatures up when needed. If I have a job and, uh, you know, it's in the winter and the power's been knocked out, 
and I want to, you know, maintain an inside condition of 100 degrees, and, and let's say I have a starting point outside at zero, you're going to need substantial BTUs to be able to come up to that preset temperature if you're bringing zero degrees of outside air uh, into the structure and, and, and heating it up. Um, the RX heat has the power to provide, uh, you know, temperature rises from 25 degrees all the way up to 175 degrees because of the substantially larger BTUs that are produced. Uh, greater energy and more BTUs will enable me to drive faster, even in the worst-case scenarios where I have an extremely cold outside condition. Andy? Andy, what are the, yeah. what are the disadvantages of heat drying, and in what situations would it not be recommended? Um, so, so I think heat-based technology, um, in my opinion, is not the silver bullet in the industry that, you know, everybody is looking for. Um, I don't believe that we're ever, we ever will, you know, have a silver bullet, uh, for the continue, I'm sorry, the industry is continuing to evolve. Uh, what was standard practice last week may be completely different next week. Uh, I think with heat-based, uh, you need to be able to get the machine close enough to the structure to be able to run your ducts in. Uh, if you are running excessive lengths of ducting on any heat-based system, uh, you will lose um, a little bit of efficiency in your temperature. I think that's a little bit of a limitation. Um, you know, a disadvantage that you could see uh, would be access to refueling. We talked about different fuel consumptions, diesel, propane, different systems that are out there. Uh, when it comes to refueling, uh, you may, you know, need it, and when you can get it, potentially could be two different things. Uh, you want to make sure, first of all, that you have a good relationship with the local gas company to be able to supply you the refills, um, you know, with your machine. Uh, I may be limited with heat-based equipment if the client wants to occupy the space, you know, while the dry-out is going on. Um, if they're not comfortable occupying with higher temperatures that are being used with heat-based drying, uh, they may request for you to turn the equipment down or, uh, you know, if you turn the equipment down, uh, could limit the effectiveness, let me try that again, sorry about that, the effectiveness of your drying. Um, a disadvantage, I think, the, you know, the larger trailer-based systems that we work with uh, would probably not be recommended for losses that are, you know, one or, one or two bedroom losses, maybe 500 square feet or less. Some people may see that as a limitation, you know, on a uh, bigger system. Um, smaller jobs that require heat uh, can be cost-effective with similar electric-based heating systems, you know, that maybe will work in a smaller footprint, um, you know, on the job. So I think those are some of the disadvantages that, you know, potentially you could see with heat-based drying equipment. You know, one of the things that, that, that I found unique is I know a drying contractor who's in Arizona, and this guy has always been ahead of the curve. And, uh, you know, I think like many of the listeners would think, you know, Arizona, it's really hot, it's really dry, it's the desert. You know, would someone use heat drying systems out there? And he's been using them for many, many years and, uh, you know, using them quite successfully. So, uh, you know, I think people are using them uh, pretty much throughout the country. Um, can your unit be used for some auxiliary profit-making opportunities such as uh, baking out a, an odor-laden uh, property to eliminate odors or to eliminate tear gas or something like that? Or does it get hot enough to kill bed bugs uh, inside of a building? Because heat's one of the processes that they're using for that. Great question, Cliff. Uh, and I think there's, you know, two questions in there. Um, you know, the RX heat unit uh, has been used by restoration professionals. It's been used by pest control operators, building owners to carry out a plethora of different types of jobs. Um, you know, RX and heat-based equipment has been used to increase the temperature of materials to create off-gassing and post-fire-related jobs. Uh, basically, what we're doing is we're opening up the pores and allowing, you know, the uh, odors to, to resonate out as the pore and the surface temperature is uh, being raised. Um, so, yeah, we've had success. I had a uh, client that had a, um, uh, an antique piece of furniture, and they had, um, they had used a large volume of mothballs. Um, and when the piece came in, uh, many restoration techniques were used, uh, a lot of Unsmoked products were used uh, with success, but we weren't able to remove fully 
the mothball odor. Um, we actually went in a different direction in, in me working with the restoration company, and we introduced controlled heat and, and, and started to raise the, the temperature of that uh, uh, material. And as we raised the uh, temperature of the material, we were creating off-gassing. During the time, we were also using uh, activated charcoal and carbon, and all the different techniques that were used previously were gaining ground but as we, again, opened the pores and increased the temperature, we were able to get substantially better results. Um, you know, as far as bed bugs are concerned, um, you know, bed bugs, I, I believe it's a very serious problem um, that we would be more than happy to discuss uh, this application, you know, in detail with any clients that may be interested, you know, at a separate time. Okay. All right. Well, now it's probably a good time to... Uh, you know, move into halftime. And we're delighted to have as our newest sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplined organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning equipment and odor removal, cleaning and antimicrobial products that remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors. Indoor, Indoor Environment Connections, <laughs> the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information, available at ieconnections.com. Dryze Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryze is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com legends environmental insurance services the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years learn about them at legends-enviro.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of iq radio when you inquire about their products and services how about going over to the technical director dr dieter weil for comments Dieter. Well, well, well. <laughs> I got to send you a new CD with maybe the ninth or the third symphony, but that is all right, too. Okay. Uh, anyway, no, I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, uh, what I heard or, um, uh, because that's basically what I'm telling when I talk about psychrometrics and drying, and I'm certainly not an expert in that, but I know quite a bit about the psychrometric chart. And I always tell my students, remember what drying is all about. When you have a washer and a dryer, what do you have in your dryer? A refrigeration system or a heating system? Mm -hmm. And what do you do with the uh, moisture-laden air? Uh, well, you, you put it inside the house when you're in Alaska in January <laughs> for very good reasons. But by and large, it goes to the outside. And that's how you dry your clothes in a very small environment. Now you have a whole house. It makes a lot of, I mean, psychrometric, psychrometric speaking, it makes a lot of sense to me. Heat the damn thing up and get the moisture-laden air out of there. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Now, the, the ductwork and all of that, I don't know. I have never seen it being done. But obviously, you got to get the warm air in, and you got the moisture-laden uh, air, you got to get it out. So to me, that certainly makes um, uh, uh, quite a bit of sense. Uh, another question, in fact, that was a question I had before we started, has been answered, um, that you like to uh, be somewhere between uh, 100 and 120 degrees maximum. And I, I guess that is good enough for for things which are in a house. I, you know, it's a photograph. If I heat that to 120 degrees, I think that's all right. But uh, in my computer, uh, uh, you know, you can't take everything out of the house when you dry it. But, yeah, overall, what I heard makes a heck of a lot of sense to me. Good. All right. 
Well, Andy, let's let's talk about some of the hardball things that or curveball questions, I guess. Um, some heat okay. some heat drying systems have elaborate patents and intellectual property with them. You know, how does your system differ from other heat drying systems, and how do you get around uh, this patents and intellectual property? Well, it definitely is a hardball question. I think you just threw at us, Cliff. Um, let me see if I can break it down this way, and this may be a um, you know, the easiest way I can explain it. Um, the protection of patents and trademarks and the proper licensing of these are critical to long-term success of both John Don, the relationships that we have with RX, and what I believe uh, also uh, to the country as a whole. Um, John Don nor our partner RX would, uh, would do anything to knowingly infringe on the valid patent rights of any other uh, organization. Uh, one thing I would do is I would separate process, the process from the equipment. And what I mean is the RX heat equipment has patented technology that are unique and created by the parent company, uh, Cambridge Engineering in St. Louis. As far as uh, specific processes are concerned, some remediation techniques and processes are patented in the industry. Um, our advice to clients is uh, if, there, if that – let me try that again. Our advice to our clients is that if uh, the protocol calls for a particular patented procedure, we recommend that they go through the necessary legal steps with the patent holder to license that procedure. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if the patent is expired or there is an off-patent application, they are free to use it. Um, regarding the RX uh, heat unit capabilities, uh, we feel there are, are numerous to the second part of your question, how does the system differ? Um, RX uh, smart controls allow the user to program desired drying conditions, and the unit will actually modulate its energy or its BTU consumption automatically to be able to achieve and maintain that, that particular output or that preset temperature. Um, other systems uh, turn completely off or a burner shuts off, uh, and, continuous, and continues to deliver outside air to maintain temperatures. Uh, this can be a problem, guys, in a frigid environment. Um, the RX system also has a small footprint, but it delivers as much as five times the amount of BTUs of competitive systems at the same price. The mo I think the most impressive and effective feature uh, of our system are that they can deliver from 100,000 to 1.2 million BTUs and what that means to the client is that you can do very small residential losses and be able to handle larger commercial losses with the same unit. You don't have to go out and buy multiple size pieces of heat-based equipment to handle the largest or even the smallest application. Joe? I've got another question that comes up a lot, and that is um, with heat drying, are we taking a chance that we can drive things too quickly or too dry and cause damage? Um, I think any job application that is mismanaged as far as temperature can as far as temperature control, Joe, uh, can result in damage to materials. You heard me mention earlier that I think there's a right and wrong temperature uh, on the job with the, with heat. It comes down to really defining, uh, in my opinion, a safe operating temperature for each and every job and setting it appropriately. Um, I heard a great analogy the other day, and I'll share it with you. You know, if you dry normal materials with a flamethrower, you're going to dry it too rapidly and damage. If you keep the temperatures uh, to between, say, 95 and 120 for normal materials and remove the items that wouldn't do well, uh, like candles and makeup and instruments, you know, that could be detuned, you know, the sensitive materials, I think you'll be fine. Uh, the RX uh, heat system has... Uh, control systems that, again, constantly monitor the drying process and adjust the energy input effectively over not just one part of the job, but the entire drying process so that we don't dry too quickly. Uh, I guess you could say if you dried your, your clothes out too fast, would it affect them? I don't think so. Okay. Annie? All right. We have heard that heat drying causes moisture to be trapped at the vapor barriers between exterior walls. Is this true? Um, I think the potential exists, and, you know, that's why John Don and, you know, our partner RX Heat 
um, have chosen to use uh, what we call a continuous drying process, you know, or 100% air exchange. We're driving that moisture-laden air to the outside rather than uh, a batch drying process. Uh, instead of, you know, a building, instead of a building, instead of building up like a swamp-type environment and then dumping the hot moisture-laden air to the outside of the structure and then beginning that process over again with a systematic process that comes up to temperature, exhaust, closes down, and comes up and closes down, uh, we again have gone in a different direction with using 100% air exchange. Um, I think when you follow, uh, you know, uh, RX heat recommendation, recommended ventilation procedures, uh, the building is maintained and secondary damage to walls and other materials is absolutely minimized because, again, we're always flushing. Um, the systems actually can also be utilized with uh, other pieces of drying equipment like inject-to-dry systems uh, to increase the airflow through the wall cavities and uh, increase the drying speed and effectiveness. So, um, you know, I do believe that, uh, you know, there are, there are ways to avoid um, trapping uh, moisture in cavities. Andy, I'm going to say this in really simple terms, and Dieter, please forgive me. Uh, we've heard that heat drying causes materials to become over, over dry or what we're going to call thirsty for moisture. And then when this equipment is removed, materials quickly want to drink and revert back to a wet state. Um, could you comment on that? Uh, I'm curious to, first of all, I guess, understand where that information comes from. I'm not sure if that's bar conversation out there that, you know, we hear or if somebody came up with that elaborate concept. Um, I think all systems in the restoration industry, um, all drying systems in the restoration industry, I guess I'll clarify that, can be misused to overdry materials beyond the equilibrium moisture content. Um, I think it goes back to proper management of a drying project, you know, to stop the process prior to the point, you know, when using dehumidification, heat, or a combination of the two. I think, you know, the job's completion should be when the materials are back to the pre-loss conditions or within industry guidelines. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I don't believe that once you remove heat, you're going to get this abundance of moisture that flushes back into the material that is substantially greater than the equilibrium moisture content. Again, if you're monitoring your, your materials throughout the, throughout the drying process, if you've established benchmarks, you're going to dry to those standards, and essentially that's when you've completed the job. So uh, I, I think it's a fallacy, the, the, uh, the, a fallacy that the materials will take on excessive moisture. Okay, good. Let's talk... Andy. Go ahead. Go ahead, Cliff. I was just going to try and summarize. I think he answered a lot of these text questions that are coming up here, but uh, we can try and summarize that later. Okay. Um, Andy, let's talk, let's move to the specifics uh, of the equipment. Uh, how much does, okay. it, if, if I was running your unit flat out in a cold uh, environment, you know, where the building didn't have any auxiliary heat, you know, what's the most money I could spend a day to, to run it? I think it comes down to, um, you know, the total BTUs that you're using, fuel consumption. Um, you know, if I have a substantial temperature gain that I'm looking to achieve, we were talking earlier about extreme temperature differentials. If I have a zero-degree outside air and I'm going to 120, right. I'm going to burden substantially larger BTUs. That could equate to, you know, three or four or five gallons of propane per hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, propane per gallon on average, an industry average, we see about, you know, 2 to $3 per gallon. So over a 24- or 48-hour period, let's say I burn through, you know, 100 gallons to complete my job at 2 or 3 bucks, right. I may have $300 of hard costs into the job. But understand this, that, that fuel consumption that we're billing for, that will be, you know, um, charged to the insurance company. It's not a cost that I'm taking on that I can't recoup. Right. It's part of the job. And again, it's something I am billing back to the insurance company. Um, you know, again, I think it's going to depend um, on the machine. Again, I had mentioned earlier that the RX uh, will actually give you the ability to throttle back to BTU. So if you're burning more fuel on the front side of the job where you need maximum BTUs, 
by the time you get uh, the free water gone and you throttle it back, what may have been you know six dollars an hour in hard cost ends up only maybe being you know two dollars in hard cost as you're 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 finishing the job up. So I, I think there's there's definitely a variance out there in uh, you know what the hard cost may be in, in running different heat based equipment. Annie? How do contractors yeah. how do contractors price heat drying services? Uh, as far as like what are the fees or what are they billing back to the insurance company? Yeah, the overall fees. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Xactimate has line items uh, that are established for heat-based drying equipment. Um, I know that small portable electric uh, systems, you know, we had mentioned that earlier, like 115-volt systems, uh, on average will, will, will rent for about $200 per day. When you get involved in larger systems, more of the trailer-mounted systems, uh, we see averages that are from about $1,700 up to about $2,500 a day, depending on the size of the unit and whether it's going to be a freestanding system or if it's going to be, you know, in a trailer system. Mm-hmm. Joe? Andy, I just want to kind of first summarize that um, we've had quite a nice conversation going online here, and I want to let anybody who's involved in that know that if your question hasn't been answered by somebody else uh, chatting back and forth, please repeat it. But I think we pretty much answered most of these, and that, you know, essentially um, there were questions about, you know, how long does the process take? Uh, how do you know when you're done? And it, it's really not any different. I agree. I mean, the completion of a job is when your your affected materials are back to pre-loss standards or equilibrium moisture content. You know, I'm not trying to make this more difficult than it is. Um, It's just a different delivery system when we talk about heat-based drying equipment. The same things, the same processes are happening on the job. You're still using air movers. You're still taking moisture content readings. All those things are the same. It's just a, deli- a different delivery system for drying the structure. Let me let me ask another follow-up to that, then, Andy. Uh, let's uh, you know we know a lot of people have problems with um, when slabs get wet. You know, slabs act like a big sponge. Would you still, on occasion, tent the slab when you're using your heat system? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you know, desiccants, we dry slabs out with uh, desiccant applications. And, you know, a lot of times we will, will run tenting to kind of focus our energy at the slab. I absolutely can do the same. Again, if I have a heat delivery system that's just bringing heat into this structure, um, I, I can take, uh, you know, four mil or six mil uh, poly sheathing, you know, tape it down, use an air mover to, uh, you know, inflate it and have an evacuation point to allow the moisture to uh, uh, come out on the opposite side. So absolutely, you can do that. You know, what, what's interesting about slabs, I just heard this. Uh, I'm involved as a, an expert in, in a case that was water damage occurred in 2006. Uh, they left the house sit for a long time. Unique construction because there was actually, uh, the house was built like a fortress. There were actually con- concrete slabs on the first floor and full basements underneath. And the slab is still wet. It's three years later. And yeah. I was actually talking to a colleague of mine who had suggested uh, the use of ground-penetrating radar uh, for determining how wet that slab is. And uh, pretty interesting uh, technology. So, you know, for those listeners out there, if you've got a wet slab and you're trying to determine where it's wet, where it's not, uh, there is a technology available, this ground-penetrating radar that you can use uh, on your slabs. I just thought I'd throw that in, and hopefully uh, that little tip will, uh, you know, will will help someone. Uh, Andy, how long does it take you to set up the unit once you roll uh, out on site? Um, so the RX system that we're currently working with, one of the beauties of it is uh, the setup time uh, can be achieved in a matter of uh, minutes. You know, we pull up to the job site, and again, if it's a trailer uh, system, you know, we'll, we'll drop the trailer, we'll actually uh, equalize the trailer. Um, within a matter of 10 minutes, uh, we are up and actually providing warm, dry air to the structure. You know, some of the other systems in the marketplace can be a little bit more time-consuming to set up, um, 
I've seen some systems that can take, you know, upwards of an hour or an hour and a half uh, in the setup time and, and in the teardown time. Um, some systems in the market uh, also do require a cool-down period because the machinery is hot. Uh, we don't have that situation with the RX uh, heat. So, again, when I talk about the ability of 10-minute uh, setup and teardown, uh, I don't have a, a cool-down process, which allows me to get off the job at uh, completion and be able to hopefully get right to my next job site, you know, if I'm using it during a, a storm surge. I think the other benefit of that is, you know, time is money. We all agree that upon that. You know, if I can uh, limit uh, the labor that I'm billing to the insurance company for my setup, you know, from 15 minutes, from an hour or two hours, uh, it's going to be a benefit. Actually, we have a text question from a listener, which I'm going to, I don't believe has been answered. I'm going to give you this one, Andy, and then we're probably going to go to a roundup. The question is, how do you heat a residential unit and not have a hot ceiling and a cold floor? Hot air is buoyant and will rise. Okay. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the ability of air movement is going to be uh, very beneficial in this application. You know, we use axial air movers a lot of times on the jobs. So I have the ability of pulling air down from a ceiling if I have a downward draft that I'm using um, with axial air movers. But the, the beauty of the machine is with, with larger BTUs, I can actually heat the air temperature, and I have the ability of being able to heat the materials. Um, systems that may not have enough BTUs, they focus on heating the materials and not the air. So, again, I think with um, proper BTUs, enough BTUs to be able to do things simultaneously, the ability of air movers to help uh, manage and, and manipulate, you know, where the air is and where the heat may be going and bringing it down and, and being able to get the heat to the materials uh, is a way to overcome that. Okay. Uh, let's go to a roundup. I think we'll go to Dr. Dieter first, and then Joe, and then Annie, and then I'll bat clean up. Okay, Dieter. Yeah, well, I don't have much to add. Um, I, I think what we were talking about for the last hour or so is applied psychometrics, and I have absolutely no problem with it. On the contrary, I endorse it. Good. That's what I'm teaching. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not in the commercial way uh, or a place to apply all of that. That's Andy's job, and he's doing a very good job at it. And um, you know, with a with a little bit of knowledge of the behavior of moisture in air, we call it psychometrics, and a lot of common sense, and uh, some good air movers, I think we are on the right track to do what we want to do. We want to uh, dry out that building. That's our number one, you know. It doesn't have to look pretty and, and, and all of that. We want to dry that building, and that is the ut of, of utmost importance. Okay, Joe. Yeah, Andy, I, I, uh, there's two text questions. I figured I'd um, go ahead and try and uh, get you to answer those. One is, um, I kind of, it threw me a little bit, but I, I think it's a good question. What kind of hazard communication training is needed for the workers who use this equipment? What type of hazard communication training? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I think that the technicians need to understand uh, heat, you know, need to understand uh, um, limitations, you know, the, the environment itself. If you're putting, you know, excessive heat into a um, confined space, you're going to need to understand uh, what type of precautionary um, what precautionary measures you're going to have to take from a technician level uh, and being able to relay that, you know, from the top down. Um, Maybe I so. can help add one here. Um, certainly they're going to have to have hazard communication training on whatever fuel source you're using. 
Well, yes, correct. Uh, you know, one of the things with, with any heat-based system, you know, they're going to have to understand propane, you know, DOTs, uh, can I carry propane? How many bottles can I carry? Does it need to be on the outside? Can I carry bottles inside of a vehicle? Um, you know, what are the state and local uh, requirements for um, propane compliancy, you know, going through tunnels? So, you know, there are a series of things that technicians would need to understand. Um, all of that is actually covered uh, in the training process, you know, and I'm going to make this assumption that, you know, the training process, whether it be our technology or our heat-based equipment or any competitive system in the marketplace, the manufacturers or the people who are selling it would communicate those safety issues to the end user that may be purchasing it um, so that they're fully trained and up to speed and are in compliance, I guess you could say. I got one more quick one, and then maybe, Cliff, you can take guest 39. How critical is it that businesses in high-risk areas have an agreement in place with the restoration company? I think it's super important. Okay. I thought, yeah. I, I kind of assumed that. I mean, especially in the uh, in the areas like, um, you know, where you get the hurricanes, et cetera, the resources are going to be used up quickly. And well, yeah. I mean, Joe, you elaborated on, you know, I, I gave you a simple answer, but I think you nailed uh, a lengthier answer, which is when, when the crap hits the fan, to be politically correct, um, resources are very limited. So, you know, if you uh, – if you have the ability of uh, signing a contract in advance, it's a good thing, uh, knowing that you're going to get uh, service uh, in the event there is some type of event. So I I'm all for it, if you can get it. Andy, go ahead. Take comment from guest 39 there. Yeah. The guest here says, I have heated buildings which resulted in significant dust concentrations post-heat. How can the dust be avoided or controlled? Um, so I guess the question that I would have asked that person is how much airflow were they, you know, passing through the structure? You know, were they putting 6,000 CFM or, or 2,000 or, or 4,000? You know, I think one of the things that you can do um, is you certainly can incorporate the uh, use of an air scrubber onto that job, which can give you some dust particle control, uh, you know, especially if you're using high-volume systems, you know, or, or – uh, technologies that have substantially higher CFM that's coming in. Air scrubbers are, are great uh, methods of being able to capture um, particulate. That's a great answer. Well, Andy, because I'm last, I actually have uh, actually have four questions for you. Okay. Question okay. number one has: Have any of your customers for this unit ordered their second unit already? Yes. Okay. Yes. We have uh, we have a gentleman um, that that bought a freestanding system, uh, had used it for four or five months, um, and has actually since purchased uh, three additional systems. Okay. So we are seeing repeat purchases in our heat-based drying technology system that we offer to the market. Okay. Uh, is there anything that um, we didn't ask you that you would like to add? Well, I, I think I want to make a general statement, you know, and this, this goes back to drying as a whole. Um, you know, I believe that every job that a contractor may come across can call for a different type of tool or a different type of uh, equipment. You know, I, I believe it's similar to like a handyman. If you look in a toolbox of a handyman, you know, you will see an assortment of different types of tools to do the different types of jobs that the handyman may have. Uh, I believe that heat drying equipment is the same. You need to have a combination of different tools in your toolbox to achieve the best possible results consistently. And sometimes it may be heat-based equipment, sometimes it may be desiccant application, sometimes it may be traditional LGRs. The best of both worlds is having all the different tools and identifying where each tool can give you the best efficiency of that job. Is more information available on the systems should our listeners uh, wish to obtain it? Yes, absolutely. So there's, there's two ways to obtain additional information uh, pertaining to the different types of heat-based equipment that John Don work, works with. Again, everything from electric to um, trailer-mounted uh, systems. Uh, for additional information, they can uh, visit our website, which is www.johndon.com, 
and they can click on uh, heat-based equipment. Uh, another option would be uh, to reach out to uh, John Don directly or, and, and ask for a member of our restoration team. And the number we can be reached from is 1-800-556-6366. And again, any member of the restoration team should be able to assist with uh, additional questions um, that anybody may have pertaining to this technology or any other technology that we work with. Well, that's great. That was my, my last question, which was how to contact you. Well, Andy, thank you very much for joining us. I can tell you this topic hit a nerve. I mean, we had... Well, thank you. Uh, we had many, many people on uh, logged into this. This was uh, really a great show, and I think uh, the audience really liked it. Before I sign fact, off, I'd let yeah. Before you go, Cliff, let me uh, just let all these people that are sure. still on know. Um, next week, we've got EPA's Sam Rashkin uh, will be on from the Energy Star program, so don't forget to come back next week at noon. Okay. All right, before we sign off, I'd like to thank our guest, uh, Andy Robinson with John Don, uh, my guest host, Radio Joe Hughes, environmental Ann Koalecki, the wingman, Chris Boisel, our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, but most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.